0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we are talking about risk, and we're coming to that idea from two very different directions. One of our guests studies aquatic predators like sharks to better understand their role in the global ecosystem. The other creates transgenic organisms like goats with spider genes to build new knowledge and solve old problems. The aquatic ecologist and the biological engineer coming up next. This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew LaPlante. Every episode of this program is a bit of a risk. Whether we're introducing two researchers from vastly different scientific backgrounds or bringing together a larger group of researchers to talk about science and discovery in our world, we never really know how things are going to work out. Sometimes it doesn't work out at all. Sometimes we fail. Because we're supported by public radio listeners like you, we can fail, once in a while at least, because you've told us that you want us to try to build connections where they might not be obvious. The conditions for risk-taking aren't always as forgiving in the world of science, especially for young researchers who are under constant pressure to publish findings of significance in scientific journals. The problem is that these journals don't often publish the results of experiments that fail to prove anything or in which the findings may be significant but might not be really all that interesting for whatever reason. As a result, a lot of scientists don't feel like they're in a position to take a risk that an experiment or expedition might not work out. Today on the program, we're going to talk a bit about that and about what, if anything, can be done to address it. Joining us in studio is Tricia Atwood. She is the director of the Aquatic Ecology and Global Change Lab at Utah State University, where she leads a team dedicated to the study of aquatic ecosystems, including a particular fascination with apex predators. She is the recent recipient of a research fellowship from the National Academies, which she'll be using to explore questions about human effects of the marine carbon cycle. Tricia, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: And also with us in studio is Randy Lewis. You might have seen his biological engineering lab at Utah State University, featured in late September on the CBS program Innovation Nation. At that lab, researchers are working feverishly to develop spider silk proteins from organisms other than spiders. Randy, I'm glad you're here. Glad to be here. Let's start by ruining the rest of your week. If you are the parent of a toddler or know a toddler or have not been hiding under a rock, you know that that is the baby shark song. It is perhaps the world's worst earworm, but it's loved by children all around the world, and maybe that's not such a bad thing because our relationship with sharks is fraught with fear rather than adoration, and Tricia Atwood is one of the many scientists working to change that because apex predators play an absolutely essential role in our oceans. Tricia Atwood, sharks are at the top of the food web, and I suppose most people realize that makes them important. But earlier this year, you were a part of a team that argued in the journal Trends in Ecological Evolution for a more comprehensive understanding of aquatic predators. What are the roles that these organisms play that a lot of people, even some scientists, might miss?
1: One of the new things that is kind of coming into light about predators is their role in climate mitigation. Part of that is how they help marine systems and also terrestrial systems store carbon or accumulate more carbon.
0: And we're probably not going to like turn back global warming by ensuring more sharks are in our oceans. But what this finding really highlights is just how complex our carbon webs are. They might be more complex than our food webs.
1: They are probably equally as complex as our food webs because it's that food web that is really uh, setting kind of that background for what is happening as carbon kind of moves through a system, as it moves from a prey to a predator that can be from a plant to a herbivore, from a herbivore to a top predator like a shark. So
0: what did you find in this study? What did you find was the aquatic predators role in this carbon sequestration process?
1: This study was done on Heron Island, which is um, a small island out in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Oh, you poor, poor thing. I know. It's a, it's a rough life being a scientist. But what we were looking at is the system where we have things like sharks uh, that represent kind of our top predators in the system. And what these predators do is they scare their prey. And they scare their prey in such a way that their prey choose to forage maybe at a different time or a different location, and that can change plant growth. Because if our prey are foraging somewhere else, it means that where they're foraging, those plants are going to get eaten heavily. And where they aren't eating, those plants are going to be able to grow because they're not being munched on by herbivores. And that changes how much carbon is actually being stored in the system.
0: This is part of the idea of the ecology of fear that we hear a lot about when it comes to, like, uh, apex predators on the savanna or wolves in Yellowstone, right?
1: Yeah, so sometimes people refer to it as a landscape of fear. Um, In the ocean, we, of course, refer to it as a seascape of fear.
0: We haven't really had a scientifically-based framework for making decisions about our relationship with aquatic predators before, Your team has suggested one. How does that framework work, and why is it important?
1: The framework that we are suggesting is that animals, by and large, have been seen as inconsequential to carbon cycling. We manage them heavily. We manage sharks a lot. So we manage them for predators, for our own personal safety, but we haven't included them in these carbon models. Some of these Earth system models are the models that we use to actually predict what our climate is going to look like in the future. And because we haven't included things like predators in those models, we are missing a big part of the story. And that means that our predictions are probably wrong.
0: What do we need to do to better inform that? Where do we need to go from here?
1: So we're actually starting kind of at the basic research stage. We are essentially trying to show support for the fact that predators and and herbivores can significantly impact carbon storage or carbon sequestration in an ecosystem. Once we can show support for that, we can start to look at broad landscape level impacts. And that's when we can start to put animals into these models where we can then start making better predictions about climate change. But right now, we're really at the kind of base level where we're trying to say, we have a hypothesis that predators are impacting carbon cycling. Now let's go out and show that that's really true.
0: Did you come to this from sharks or did you come to this from carbon? Like, which direction did you arrive at this intersection of these two ideas?
1: Actually, from two kind of different schools of thought. During my PhD, I was working on trophic cascades, which is where we're looking at the impacts of predators on individuals lower in the trophic level. When I went on to do my postdoc in Australia, I actually got hired by a team called the Carbon Cluster. This team's job was basically to map carbon storage across different coastal ecosystems along Australia. And although I really, really love this research, I still felt this like pull to kind of go back to like predator-prey research. Um, And I was sitting there with a colleague of mine talking about the system in Heron Island and why these fish may or may not be going further away from these patch reefs, And we decided, hey, I can actually put this together. This idea that if the predators are eating the herbivores and the herbivores are eating the plants, we know that plants are really important for carbon storage and photosynthesizing. So there has to be that knock-on effect to carbon.
0: These are the sorts of questions you're going to have a better opportunity to explore and potentially answer following an early career research award from the National Academies. You said this fellowship is going to allow you to engage in a bit of high-risk, high-reward science. And sadly, doing high-risk work, which is to say like science that might not work out and might not show anything, is really sort of a privilege these days for a lot of scientists. How do you think we can change the conditions that allow more scientists to explore their fields in ways that might not conclude with a high-impact journal publication or a spin-off technology or some tremendous insight into our world? How do we just create the conditions to let more scientists do high-risk, potentially high-reward science?
1: It's kind of with these types of fellowships. Most of uh, ecologist funding is going to come from National Science Foundation. They're working with taxpayers' dollars, right? So they really do fund projects that are most of the way done that we have a pretty good knowledge are going to work out in the way that we think they are. That makes sense. National Science Foundation is trying to protect taxpayers' dollars, so taxpayers are still interested in funding science. If we want to do really big science that can maybe make huge impacts on the way that we do things in the world or the way that we understand how the natural world works, Some of that's gonna come with failures and people need to be okay with that. And once they're okay with that, then those types of funding agencies can really start investing in that high impact, high risk type of science.
0: You grew up in Evanston, Wyoming, and then you pursued a career in the oceans. Why?
1: My parents were really, really great at fostering discovery in me and my sister. And at a young age, I got really interested in marine science. My parents sent me away to SeaWorld in San Antonio to work an internship for the summer. Of course, I loved it. And it just continued from there.
0: That's Tricia Atwood. She was part of a team that proposed a social ecological framework for supporting adaptive management decisions involving aquatic predators earlier this year the journal Trends in Ecological Evolution. Tricia, will you stay with us for just a bit as I chat with my next guest? Absolutely. And yes, my friends, in just the past few minutes, we've taken you from the adorably appropriate for anyone baby shark to the explicitly inappropriate song, Greatest of All Time by the rapper Eric Bellinger. Greatest of all time, of course, can be reduced to the acronym G O A T. That's goat, and that's the animal that has caught the fancy of people from Vice President Al Gore to astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who have marveled at the work being done in the lab of Randy Lewis, who first came to national attention when he and his fellow researchers inserted two key genes that allow spiders to weave their silk into the genetic codes of goats, resulting in mammals that could be milked for spider silk proteins. Randy, since that time, you and your collaborators have created all sorts of transgenic organisms from which we might be able to harvest something like spider silk. But I'd like to take a step back. Why spider silk?
2: Spider silk has a combination of properties that really are not found in any other natural or man-made material. That is, they're very strong and they're also very elastic. You see things like nylon that are very elastic. You see things like Kevlar that are very strong. You don't see a combination of the two. And that's what's unique about spider silk.
0: And recently, Randy, I understand there's been kind of a lot more attention given to the potential for spider silk proteins to be used for products that might replace our really bad addiction to plastic.
2: Yes, um, we've discovered that there are ways to convert the material instead of into a fiber, into films and into sheets and things like that. So we're looking at them for coatings, for film material Uh, for a wide variety of applications other than just making fibers.
0: Okay, so why don't we just like make a big spider farm? Why, Why does that not work?
2: Well, it turns out in the 1800s in both England and France, they tried that, and, and the spiders that we work with make the typical round web called an orb web. Um, they have two sort of serious personality defects. The first is, is that, that they're very territorial. The second is they're cannibalistic. So if you put a bunch of spiders together, what you end up with is the apex predator, whoever's the best at killing, kills everybody else and has its own web.
0: And that's really bad for silk production. It
2: certainly is not good for silk production. So one of your lab's latest published
0: feats is using the gene insertion and deletion technology known as CRISPR to harness the spinning power and efficiency of silkworms to create something more akin to spider silk through silkworms. I'd like to walk through this. How many genes did you need to alter to make this happen?
2: Uh, We just needed to to actually take one gene and replace it with another one. One? Just one? Just one. Okay. and, And
0: CRISPR makes this easy. Well, easier, at least.
2: I'm wondering, like, when you
0: started your career, could you have imagined a technology that would make genetic
2: modification so much more accessible? No. Uh, you know, we've, we've sort of grown through the different versions of gene manipulations. We've tried several of them on the way up, and, and it's clear that CRISPR is certainly, right now, without a doubt, uh, the easiest to do and the most successful.
0: If you're trying to get an animal that isn't a spider to weave silk like a spider, silkworms seem to be a really common sense organism to do something like that with. But your lab has gone through goats, as we mentioned. Uh, You've done bacteria, alfalfa. Those seem like less likely organisms for this
2: work. Why not start with silkworms? The real reason, again, was that the technology wasn't there to do it. And we actually did it a number of years ago. Problem is, is that we were only able to randomly insert the gene into the chromosomes of the silkworm. The silkworm recognizes over a period of time that that's a foreign gene. So what you see is successive generations have less and less spider silk, and ultimately they don't have any left at all. But now with the new
0: technology, you can insert it in, and if it pops out three or four or five generations later, it's not hard to insert back in? Or does it maintain longer?
2: We have taken a spider silk gene and put it in exactly the same location as the silkworm silk gene. So the silkworm now has no idea that that gene is not its own. We've done it through five or six generations, and in fact, by selective breeding, we actually get stronger and stronger silk each generation.
0: You know, a lot of people get nervous when we talk about transgenic organisms, and I think the power to do this via CRISPR has really moved this ability from very well-regulated, well-funded labs that are usually associated with a university more toward, if not to, amateur scientists. You run a very well-regulated lab at a university. Do you have concerns about how accessible CRISPR has made it to engage in genetic modification?
2: Yeah. I think there is a much bigger risk now that people can successfully make these changes in, in the genome of anything.
0: What are the next steps in your research? What are the questions you want to answer next?
2: Um, you know, we're still at a point where um, the, the silkworms are great because you can make fibers. But we've got all these other applications that we need the spider silk protein for. So we still have to figure out how to scale that up. Question is, are we going to be able to do it cheaply enough in bacteria? Are we going to be able to do it in alfalfa, where I think at least if you're talking about producing lots of material, that's probably a good way to go. And and the nice part is the waste that we have left over after we take the spider silk protein out, we can turn around and use for feed.
0: You mentioned alfalfa. We've talked about bacteria. We've talked about the goats and, of course, the silkworms. Are
2: we for and done or are you looking at other organisms as well? You know, nothing else that we've looked at, I think, has the combination of scalability and low enough cost. We've done some work with mammalian cells. We've done some work with insect cells. But you could never do it cheap enough to make it a commercially viable You're getting a lot of attention
0: for your work. You have been for several years now. What is that part of your job like right now? Is it something that you enjoy? Do you like it when the TV cameras show up?
2: The answer is yes. It's less of a novelty now. Most of the people in my lab have have had the film cruise in half a dozen times. So it's a little more matter of fact now. The other aspect is, is that we've made a very large effort to have people have access to come and visit the lab. So in the last couple of years, we've probably had between 800 and 1,000 people come through the lab. It's mostly school kids. Sort of encouraging the students, I think, is what we're really interested in, to be able to turn them on, to show them there's some really cool science going on, to sort of keep the STEM pipeline going.
0: I appreciate when scientists make science accessible. I think that's a really important part of what we do now. That's Randy Lewis. His team's recent report in the journal Biomacromolecules details the use of CRISPR to create silkworms that spin spider silk. And his lab was recently featured on the CBS show Innovation Nation. Randy, can I introduce you to someone who I think you're really going to enjoy talking to? Yes, indeed. All right. Then, Randy, this is aquatic ecologist Tricia Atwood. And, Tricia, this is biological
2: engineer Randy Lewis.
1: Hi, Randy. Hello.
2: So this is a little crazy. You have two people from Wyoming. Oh, you grew up, up in Wyoming Virginia. also? I grew up in Powell, Wyoming. So that's like that's like so a fifth on. of
0: the population of Wyoming yeah, right here. About, <laughs> pretty
2: close, not counting the antelope. So.
0: Well, good. So we've already built a connection. Let me see if I could build another one. Earlier, I was talking to Tricia about high-risk and high-reward science, and I was hoping to continue that discussion here because that's certainly the sort of science that Randy's engaged in too. How do we create the conditions that allow young scientists, Randy, you were talking about trying to inspire young scientists. How do we create the conditions that get young scientists in particular to reach for crazy things and sometimes fail miserably in the effort without risking their careers in doing so?
2: Um, You know, I I really wish there was a good answer. I think uh, Trisha hit the nail on the head it's really hard to convince funding agencies to take chances. And I think that NSF um, has become less and less good at it over my 20 plus year career with them. It's a serious problem. I think NIH now has taken steps in the right direction. They have a program that's specifically designed for younger faculty member. They have ones that supposedly don't require uh, any preliminary information. I suspect that that's not really the way they get reviewed, but at least you know that if you have a crazy idea, and and honestly, um, you know, you're talking about ocean predators, and we're very interested in an organism called a tenophore. They have an aquatic glue that they use to adhere their prey. I'm searching very hard to try and find a way to get that funded, and phone calls have not been very successful because we have no preliminary information. Certainly the data that you see from people who have at least looked at the organisms is very intriguing. And we've already demonstrated that we know how to do this with spider silk. And yet, you know, it's clear nobody's just jumping and said, hey, that's a great idea. Yeah, send us a proposal. It, it hasn't happened.
1: So you kind of talked about all these other organisms and even trying to change that gene in silkworms. How many times did you fail before you got it?
2: I spent a whole sabbatical getting bacteria to produce the spider silk protein. Even then, it was minuscule amounts. I mean, we started this project literally 30 years ago this year. It was our first publication. And that's how long we've been working at it. And there's still, you know, at the commercial level, we haven't gotten there yet. So, I mean, you could argue we still haven't been successful yet.
1: Are you guys getting close to, you think, getting this done at like a, a massive scale? Or are we still pretty far away?
2: The silkworm, we're in good shape. I mean, we know we can make large quantities. It's a matter now of how do you scale it up? And let's be blunt about it. China is our obvious place to go to do it, but now all of a sudden we have these other political impact factors that you have to deal with. We were trying to set up an agreement with a Chinese company. The university president got involved in approving the agreement. Two years ago, this had been between us and them. Just thinking about the political aspects, do you see any possibility being able to impact the way we're treating ocean-going organisms? It's clear from the work you've done, if we knock off the top predators, we run into trouble. But we don't seem to have the willpower or the ability to actually do something about it.
1: That seems to kind of be true, but there's these little baby steps that are kind of coming along about our protection of predators. Australia set out these things called drum lines. It's a basically a baited or an unbaited hook. That it's meant to catch sharks that are maybe coming into areas where people like to surf, people like to swim, and there is very, very little evidence that that actually reduces human conflict with them. Just recently, federal court has decided in Queensland that they can no longer drum line within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. That's one court ruling. Hopefully there'll be more that kind of lead to this where we see that we can't engineer the ocean for our protection in any way, not with sharks, not with waves.
2: So one other question I had that, that came up, and how about introduced species that, that are predators? And, and I bring that up because tenophores were accidentally introduced into the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and basically wiped out the caviar. They ate so many that the sturgeon just disappeared. So how does that play in? Because clearly, you know, now you have to worry about species being brought in from from anywhere.
1: Yeah. When we talk about protecting organisms or managing organisms to increase carbon storage, We need to think about that these food webs are really complex. We might manage a system in a way that we think should add carbon to it or protect carbon, and we actually get the flip result. So we need to really understand what's going on with the food webs before we really start managing and messing with these systems. Otherwise, you can end up with something completely opposite of what you were going for.
0: We were talking earlier to Randy about sort of like the unintended consequences of technologies that make genetic manipulation easier for anybody to do. We live in a world now also where if people have a a bold idea about how to quote unquote fix the ocean problems, they can kind of do that. For instance, with like introduced predators. What is the role of ecologists in trying to get people to just take a step back and not overreact, but also in a world of global climate change to react because we can't afford not to.
1: I guess this gets at the heart for, for each scientist, right? You want to convince people that we need to act now and act rationally, but almost a little bit irrationally as well, because you want to kind of get stuff done, right? Like we don't have time now to figure out entire food webs. We need to stop climate change now, or we're going to be dedicated to a two degree Celsius change. So I I have an
2: off-the-wall sort of question that suddenly struck me. So what do you think Shark Week does?
1: Shark Week. I have actually never watched it. I've only only watched advertisements for it. It's really hard because, you know, there's supposed to be this thing, right? You know, like any press is good press, and I don't think that's true for a shark. I think there's bad press that reignites that fear like Jaws did for me when I was a child, right? Like if I ever have kids, they're never watching that show.
0: Randy, you've been really good at cultivating some good press around the work that your lab does. How do you manage that? How do you? I mean, you've been fortunate, I think, and in, in most cases that nobody's come after you. Um, even though you really are, you're working at the edge of things that a lot of people are are a little bit afraid of, if not a lot afraid of.
2: So I think we've tried to explain what the consequences are of the work we are done. So, for instance, um, we took upon ourselves to do a very serious analysis of the goats that were transgenic and ask the question, are there any health effects? And the answer is no. Are there any physiological effects? None that we can detect. So we've really pushed very hard on that. And to say we haven't had, um, literally when I was at Wyoming, University of Wyoming where we started the goat work. For about a year, we actually had extra police presence in our building because there were some people who'd made some threats and and the university was worried about security. That seems to have died down significantly, but I do get a post a couple, three times a year from somebody who's upset that we're doing what we're doing. That seems like one of the risks that
0: comes along with doing high-risk, high-reward science is that people begin to believe
2: that you're the risk. How do you prepare young scientists for that? I think it's, in our case at least, by example. I think, you know, the people in the lab um, have had that experience. You know, we've we've got answers for most of the people's questions about playing God um, and the impacts that we could have and things like that. I think we give them a pretty good basis for understanding what the real risks are to what we're doing.
0: We're just about out of time. Randy Lewis, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Sure. Enjoyed it. And Tricia Atwood, thank you.
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and that's where we recorded today's episode. If you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud, And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.